We're starting a new series today. Oh yeah, I love that when that happens. This is a test. If you've been here regularly over the last sort of few months, who can remember what was the first series that we did at the beginning of the year? Attributes of God. I'm doing a whisper. Can anyone tell me what it was? Attributes of God. Well done, everybody. The second series we did was Psalms 1 to 41. Can anyone tell me? Psalms 1 to 41. The third series we did, Revival. Can anyone tell me what that was? Revival. Oh, first class, everybody. Well done. You've all got it right. You should all be at the front because that's where good students sit, at the front, don't they? So well done, everybody. That's really good. We're going to be listening to uh, the first chapter in a few minutes. But before we do that, we're just going to set where 1 Corinthians is in the Bible. Just get used to it. We're going to be thinking about all these sort of things over the next few weeks. But today, we are just thinking about 1 Corinthians, thinking, like we say, where is it in the Bible? What's it all about? You probably remember that there's two main sections to the Bible. So we've got the Old Testament, and of course, that's mainly in Hebrew, and there's 39 books, which is things like the law, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, all those sort of things. We've got histories, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, Chronicles, Nehemiah maybe, that sort of stuff. Uh, We've got wisdom like Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, all sorts of things, uh, prophets, so loads of exciting prophets. Has anyone got a favourite prophet that they have? Say again? Isaiah. Isaiah. Someone else said something? Isaiah Isaiah as well, brilliant. Ezekiel, Ezekiel, brilliant. Anyone? Very holy people on that side obviously read the prophets. Anyone on this side want to tell us what's your favourite prophet? Yeah, great. Anyone else want to say? Jonah. Jonah, brilliant. Anyone at the back? Where the worst student sits, I think. (laughs) Anyone at the back? Jeremiah. Jeremiah, brilliant. Okay, thank you very much. So, we've all got ideas about different prophets that we like. Okay, how about the other section of the Bible? The New Testament. Now, of course, testament is a word which means promise. So, we've got the old promise, the new promise. That's what it's saying. So, mainly in Greek, 27 books, there's four Gospels, one book of Acts, 21 letters, epistles, some people say, and that's just a Greek word, really. And then the book of Revelation, which is hard to define, because it has got some letters, but it's got a lot of other stuff as well, hasn't it? So that's kind of in a category by itself. It was about 367 AD when this person called Anastasius of Alexandria decided with God's help, of course, that this was what the New Testament was. Already there was lots of people that were saying, oh yeah, this is the New Testament, the ones that we've got at the moment. Like, quite a few years before that, there was the Muraturian canon or Muraturian fragment that you hear of, and that was basically what the New Testament is now. But it was quite a few years until the books that we have now as the New Testament was the New Testament. It was like lots of things going around the churches, and some was not... Uh, sort of decided to be in the New Testament and some definitely were there's so many letters like I say 21 letters and I suppose that's really because at that time in the first century the best way to communicate with people wasn't email it wasn't sort of sending a pigeon but it was definitely sending a letter because sending a letter was 
fairly easy. If you had a friend or someone you could trust, a soldier or, or someone that you knew about who could take the letter to where you wanted it to go, then that was a really good way to make sure that the letter happened to go to the right place. Of course, there are other ancient letters about. It's not just Paul's letters and other people as well. This is where I take my iPad and have a good look at it. Is Caesario uh, uh, and other people like that, some Romans, that, their letters still exist as well. But what we find is that Paul's letters are slightly longer. And so, uh, but we've still got them. So that's, that's really good. On to the next one. Who wrote the letters? Well, as you can see from the list, Paul has the longest column, doesn't he? The longest list. So would most people agree and say that Romans, Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Thessalonians, Timothy, Titus, Philemon, were all written by Paul. And of course, these other ones in the middle column, column had their books as well. And we're not really sure who wrote Hebrews. Could have been Paul, could have been someone else, but we're not totally sure at the moment. Now, of course, if you've read the Bible recently, you've probably noticed the order of the New Testament. So Romans, of uh, Paul's letters especially, Romans, and so you can see going down the list there. But was that the order that he wrote the letters in? Shake your head. No. Now, I've put a, I'm going to put a chronological list that may have been the order, but if you notice... There's a big red question mark as well. So don't think, oh, that's what John says, but he's wrong. Just think, okay, that's John's rough idea, because it depends on where you take some of the clues, the internal clues from the Bible, as to where you place it. So some people say, oh, the one I put fifth might be the first, for instance. So don't think this is it. Just think this is something that scholars and people that are dip into it like me think it could be right. Big red question mark, remember. So, possibly this could be the order. It may not be. Like I say, Galatians could be right near the top. But it's kind of an idea that this is kind of maybe the order of the ones that Paul wrote. So, you might be thinking, okay, so this possibly is the order that he wrote it in. So, why, is, why are Paul's letters in the order that they are? I've got an idea. The first few all about churches that he wrote to. Then the last few, all about individuals he wrote to. And within those two categories, what you find is, generally speaking, the longer ones are near the top and the shorter ones are near the bottom. So when whoever compiled the order centuries ago thought these were the books of scripture, they kind of did it in a systematic way, a logical way. I think I'd really get on well with them, because I'm that kind of person as well, systematic and logical. And I think that's how they probably sorted those out. Like I say, the order I put it in chronologically, you might look it up or work it out yourself. And think, oh, it's slightly different from that. But that's okay. What we've got is definitely scripture and things that we can, the Lord speaks to us through. And Paul wrote his 13 letters over about 15 years and it was about 15 years after he'd become a Christian that he wrote his first, uh, first epistle, we think. You might know that he wrote all of these epistles to people and to churches to different places. And we'll look at that in a minute. But how many letters do you think Paul wrote? I've got 13. I'm suggesting he definitely wrote more than 13. Because there's this verse in Colossians 
maybe you're familiar with it. Colossians 4.16, after this letter, this is the, the letter to, to the church at Colossae, after this letter has been read to you, see that it is also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and let you in turn read the letter from Laodicea. So that's saying, of course, that Paul didn't just write the letters that we have, but he wrote to Laodicea and other places. We'll see a map in a moment. Here's something interesting as well. I don't think, probably you don't as well, that 1 Corinthians is really 1 Corinthians. Because he wrote to the Corinthian church before. So it wasn't really his first letter that he wrote. Here's some evidence about that. Chapter 5, verses 9, says, I wrote to you in my letter. So this is like from the book of 1 Corinthians, but he says, I've written a letter already to you. I wrote it in my letter. But now I'm writing to you. So he's saying, oh, this is another letter, but I've already written to you. And what happened is this, again, evidence from 1 Corinthians, chapter 7, verse 1, he said, now for the matters you wrote about. So what we're thinking happened is, Paul wrote a letter to the church at Corinth, and then they wrote a letter back thinking, what does this mean? And what's that about? And what do you mean about this? So then Paul wrote another letter back, and it's 1 Corinthians that we think is the letter going back. Then, of course, you might sort of say, ah, I've read in sort of certain places that there was another letter to the Corinthians before the second book of Corinthians. So really, people think there was four books of Corinthians, not two. It's just that we've got two books, but really there was probably four of them that we had. Here's some of the places that the letters went to then. So we've got Thessalonica, Corinth, Philippi, Galatia, Ephesus, Colossae, uh, and loads of places that Paul would have visited. And so he wrote a letter to them. This is just one of his journeys. If you remember, Paul did uh, three main missionary journeys, and then he journeyed to Rome uh, to be tried there and killed there. But can you see all the different places he would have visited and maybe started churches? And maybe he wrote to lots of churches that we know nothing about because we haven't got them anymore, any of the uh, sort of original letters or copies of the letters. What you'd have found is as well that some of the letters were written for circulation around the area. So some letters went not just to one church, like we talked about the one at Colossae. Can you see how, if I go back, how Laodicea and Colossae are so close to each other? So they're saying, yes, get that letter from Laodicea and then send them your letter Someone needs to copy it out because there wasn't a photocopy or anything then. So that would be quite laborious. But what an honour, in a way, to write things down, what sort of an important letter like that. And then he, they'd have sent it on. So with all these different places that Paul visited, it's quite amazing, really, because we've got so many of them left. Of course, we're thinking about Corinthians at the moment. So I wonder what Corinthians was like. You know, when you come to Nuneaton... It says Nuneaton, and then it's got a little caption underneath. Lots of towns have that, don't they, or counties. So is it George Eliot, something or other? And when you come into Warwickshire, it says Shakespeare's County, and things like that. So maybe when he went to Corinth, it might have said, an historic, bustling city. I sort of made that up. But I think that's what's true, because, again, if we look back at what happens to it, it says, ancient Corinth was one of the largest and most important cities of Greece. And in 400 BC, there was about 90,000 people that lived there. So, like, 400 years before 
pause there. There's 90,000 people living there. Now, from your ancient history, which I know that some of you are very interested in, you'll know that the Romans destroyed Corinth at some battle or other. I think it was 146 BC. Then for about 100 years, all that was there was just tumbleweed blowing in the ruins because no one lived there, there was nothing going on for 100 years. But then the Romans started building it up in like a grid system. And before it, before you knew it, there was about 250,000 people that were free and 400,000 people that were slaves. That was when Paul was there, approximately. So when Paul was there, there was about a quarter of a million free people and 400,000 people that were slaves in Corinth. That's a lot of people, isn't it? But that's what, it was bustling. And uh, because there were so many people there, it was a big place, quite near to Athens, uh, about 40 miles, I think, away. So it was quite close and it was a really big, important place. Oh, about 75,000, is it? Is it? 70,000, yeah, in the Neaton. So, a lot bigger. Yeah, it was really important because, if I show you the next bit, there it is. So you can see Corinth is strategic because it's right close to these two ports, uh, Lecaeum and Sencrea, or something like that. Uh, so they're really important ports because if you can see, if you sort of go here, people could go that way up and that way down. And I've forgotten how many miles it was between it. It was only about five or six, something like that. But what they built, they built a, like a stone roadway between the two ports so that they could get a, a boat and then just push it along this. It would take a lot of effort, wouldn't it? But they'd push it along this roadway between the two ports, because it was so important. And there was lots of temples there, maybe 12 altogether, and um, lots of commerce and manufacturing, all kinds of things. So it was really big, and lots of slaves were there, because it was so important to the, to the area. Oh, yeah. So Paul, we think, went to Corinth three times on these different journeys that he went to. And um, 1 Corinthians was written because he knew that bad things were happening in the church. There was divisions. There was bad theology being sort of talked about. And so what we have in the book of uh, 1 Corinthians is a lot of this being sorted out and being told about and being helped. So Jill's going to come and read the first chapter to us now, and then we're just going to discover a little bit more. Paul called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes. To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way, in all your speaking and in all your knowledge, because our testimony about Christ was confirmed in you. 
Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will keep you strong to the end, so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God, who has called you into fellowship with his Son Jesus Christ our Lord, is faithful. I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another so that there may be no divisions among you and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. And another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? I am thankful that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius, so no one can say that you were baptized into my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made, the fool, made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. 
Thank you. I want to say thank you to Paul, because uh, over the next few weeks, as we sort of delve into 1 Corinthians, it's Paul who's decided on what all the speakers are going to speak on. And so Paul's decided on today that I should be speaking on we are called to be. And he's given me a framework of the different verses and the subheadings of uh, the topics that I should be talking about. So thank you, Paul, for helping us with that. That's, that's really good. And so what we're looking at today is 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And what we want to think about is we are called to be four different things. And we're going to get on with them and, and think about them. By the way, there's only, I say only, but there's 16 chapters in the book and 437 verses in the book as well. Depends on which way you want to think about it. And on a Sunday morning, we're not going to be looking at every single chapter. So it's a great idea if you've got one of these, either from the website or from the back of the church. This will help us if you want to read through all of 1 Corinthians and the book of Acts as well to uh, read it through because not everything will be covered. So if you want to read everything, then this is just one way of doing it. Obviously, you could read it all in an hour, and that would be good. But this is just spreading it out over several weeks. So first of all, we're called to be saints. Now, sometimes when I look at a picture of a saint, maybe in a book, what I see is a halo. And maybe you've seen some halos in saints of old and you just look at them and think oh yeah that's what a saint is I can see a saint is there because they've got a halo of course saint is a Greek word it derives from a Greek word that means different and so when we sort of think that we're different from the world we're different because we're like the Lord so if we're sort of different distinguished and distinct It's because we're special. We're special because we follow God. And so we're different, we're set apart. I've looked in my two lexicons, because I've got two lexicons at home, and this tells us about this word hagios, which is the Greek word for holy, we might say. And it's got all of these different things. So hagios for saints and holiness. So it means we're different, we're dedicated, we're separate from common condition and use. We're consecrated. Regard or reverence as holy, to be devoted to God, to be set apart. So the important thing is, as saints, we are all of those things, because that's what we are. If we're following Christ, we're definitely saints, because in the New Testament, uh, when you would the, use the word saint, it's not someone who's been very special and now is dead, because that's what some people use saints for. No, it's okay, maybe you can use saints like that. But a saint in the Bible is someone who's being faithful and living totally for God. So that could be all of us. Saint Tanya. Brilliant. Saint Alan. It's got a ring to it, that one, hasn't it? Saint Keith, Saint Heather. All of these names. Saint Jean. Saint David. It's great, isn't it? We're all saints as we follow God. But pictorially, as we say, we can see that if we look at a picture of a saint, maybe it's got a halo there. My question to you then is, if people can't see your halo, how can they tell that you're a saint? 
how can your family and your friends and your work colleagues tell that you're a saint? What's different about your life? The way you think, the way you do things. So we're called to be saints. We're called to be different. We're called to be set apart. We're also called to be thankful. Again, that's what Jill was reading out. So we've got the little bit about saints. Now there's a big chunk about being thankful. Now someone I know uh, was talking to me about prayer the other day. And they were saying that a big chunk of their time that they use when they're praying is to thank God for things. And I thought, yeah, of course that's true. That's what we should be doing. And that was a real encouragement to keep on doing that. And I was, I was grateful for the person who said that. But yeah, it's really good as we pray to be thankful to God. Now, I was wondering this morning if we were going to create a list of all the different things we prayed for, like we asked for over the last week, and we sort of did it in secret, so you weren't going to sort of put it out the front and everyone was going to know sort of all the secret things you pray for. I wondered what would be the longest list. The things that you prayed for, said, oh Lord, please let this happen, Lord, help us, oh, help that. Or the list that you did, thank you, Lord, for giving me air to breathe. Thank you, Lord, for making me a new creation. Thank you, Lord, for a beautiful house I live in and for friends that I've got. Don't need to say, but just think in your head, which is the longest list? Praying for things, asking for things, or gratitude? Thank you, Lord, for this. Thank you, Lord, for that. Something I heard a couple of days ago, really, was, this was, and this amazed me, because in Reading, you know, down south near London, for about 19 years, the church leaders have been praying together every week. And you might have heard about this as well, because it was in the prayer wall information. Since May, over 1,200 people have become Christians. Wow, how thankful we can be. Because all of those years, like nearly two decades, the prayers of all the leaders have been rising up and going to heaven. And, and now what's God doing? People are becoming Christians in their hundreds and hundreds. And if we look at other places in the world and other places in this country, there are large numbers of people becoming Christians. On the, if you sort of look on the internet about uh, this talk and look at the outline of it, I've put two uh, web links. So if you want to find out more about what's happening in Reading, just have a look at the web links, because it's all in there, and you can just follow it and read some more if you want to. This is an exciting bit, because we're called to be thankful. So I've got some, some examples from the Bible about being thankful. I'm not going to read them all out. But let's think about the, uh, like, enter his gates with thanksgiving. So, yes, Psalm 100, verse 4. But the verses are all on the internet, on our website. So if you want to just read them and look at them, it's very easy to do some of those at home as well. So Psalm 100, verse 4. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. Oh, that's really hard sometimes, isn't it, though? If you're sort of rushing in and sort of just had a hard day already. But we're encouraged. Enter his gates with thanksgiving. If we look at the Nehemiah, if you remember Nehemiah put the walls together after they'd been torn down by an invading army. And when 
they were celebrating the wars being finished, he didn't just have one choir saying, thank you, Lord, your mercies are great. He had two choirs. And because it was quite a big wall, so he sent one choir up in one way. I don't think they walked like this, but you know what I mean. They, they walked. So one choir went that way, and the other choir went this way, and they were praising God together with thousands of people joining in, giving thanks to God. Sometimes you might have heard of antiphonal singing. People like from several hundred years ago, Italian composers were good at it. And what they did, they wrote compositions for choirs, but it wasn't one choir as such. But it was like two choirs in different parts of a cathedral. You can imagine them on a balcony or something really high up and you'd be in a congregation and suddenly they're really high up singing, thanks be to God, his name is forever. And then there's another congregation, another choir rather, sort of on this part of the uh, church or cathedral, and his mercy is new every morning. Can you imagine it? Perhaps not as much as me. I can imagine it a lot. Because I think it's brilliant how there was two choirs and we can be really thankful that we've got our hearts tuned in to God. We can do it. We're living God. I'm rushing on. But we can be thankful. Think about this one about Habakkuk as well. So Habakkuk, one of my favourite prophets as well. What I'm suggesting here, I look at you and I know some of you aren't really into singing and music. It's not, oh, okay. We sing a lot at church. It's okay. But it's not my best thing. I really prefer to do other things. What we're saying is thankfulness isn't to do with singing. It can be. But thankfulness is our attitude. Because if you read Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 17 and 18, he's saying, even if there's no figs on my fig tree, even if I've got no cattle, even if there's no sheep, still I'm going to rejoice in the Lord. Still I'm going to give him praise. Still I'm going to thank him. And that's an encouragement to all of us to say, yes, Lord, even though bad things happen, because they certainly do to all of us, still I'm going to be thankful. I'm going to have that attitude of heart to be thankful. So have we got a thankful attitude where we look for the things and say, God, thank you for doing this for me, and I'm grateful. We're called to be saints, called to be thankful. We're called to be one. Have a look around. If you'd rather not, there's a picture from a few years ago on there as well. So, we're one. But, what a diverse group of people. If we looked around and saw each other during the week, we'd say, hi, how are you? But we're not like a club that meets one day a week for like running or swimming or family history or needlework or knitting. We're so different from that because we're the church. We're not just a group of people, but we're united in God. And the idea is, I think this is really important over the next few months, because many of you know that Paul maybe is starting to step back a little bit from doing things in the church, and maybe I'm starting to do a little bit more in the church. But just as Jill read about, uh, oh, we're following Cephas, oh, we're following Apollos, oh, we're following uh, Peter, or, or whatever... We're following God together, and we're one body, because that's what God's called us to. You might remember this lady. Do you remember her name? Joe Cox. Oh, brilliant. And she was an MP, and she was killed, wasn't she, this year? But something really important she said, this was in her maiden speech in the House of Commons. 
While we celebrate our diversity, what surprises me time and time again as I travel around the constituency is that we are far more united and have far more in common with each other than things that divide us. And I thought, if that's true of a secular, in inverted commas, lady, who's just going around her area where she's sort of helping people, how much more is it true of us, the church, that we have far more in common, perhaps, than the things that might divide us? In 1 Peter 3, verse 8, they've got different versions of it saying there. Yes, just saying, let's not just be one coming together, but in our attitudes again. Show humility, show love, be a blessing to other people. That's what God's calling us to do. Moving on quickly then. God calls us to be foolish. Now, I know for some people, they sort of uh, give foolish things to do. Like, I was given some advice by my grandma when I was younger. She said, never marry a tennis player. Because love means nothing to them. And I thought, okay, that's good advice. I'll do that. But that's foolish advice because that's not the foolish bit that we're thinking about. We're not sort of thinking about having a laugh and a joke. That's not what we're on about. What we're sort of thinking, okay, my grandma didn't really say that if you were really. I made it up. But what we want to do is not be foolish being stupid. We're being foolish being childlike. And I've got these two photos, well, two pictures. And I think if you were Jesus back in 30 AD or so, what a lot of fun you'd have had. Wow, whoa, better not jump on there. But yay, great Jesus saying things, that's really exciting. And making us think and making us sort of do things we've never thought of before. Having fun with Jesus. My word, I can see it on your faces. You're thinking exactly the same as well. Because Jesus, when he was on earth, would have been great to be with. He'd been the sole centre of the party, wouldn't he? And everyone would have looked to him and thought, wow. But of course, some of the hard things he had to say would have been difficult. But a lot of the things he said, wow, and the person he was, people were attracted to him and would want to be with him. I wonder, childlikeness, have you heard Jesus say to you recently, get out of the boat, walk around the walls of Jericho, build an ark, cross the Red Sea, take up your cross and follow me, bless and love your enemies, go the extra mile, go to the king and speak for me, store up your treasures in heaven. That seems like foolishness. Can you imagine all those years ago, maybe 55 AD or thereabouts, when Paul wrote this letter to the church, what they thought about Jesus? Jesus, the Jews thought, because this is what Jill was reading, they thought, oh, he's going to be a political champion. He's going to come and overthrow. This is the Messiah is going to come and overthrow the Romans. We're sick of the Romans. We need the Messiah to do that for us. But the Greeks and the Romans, no, let's think a lot. How can a crucified criminal, because that's what they thought Jesus was, be a saviour? Can't happen. So Jesus, being as he was, seemed like foolishness to the people around them because they didn't expect it. 
And yet Jesus calls us to be childlike. And if he says any of these things to us, he's saying, yes, come, listen, do what I'm saying. Don't just think about things and think that can't be true. Think, Lord, are you really saying that to me? And then maybe if you're not sure, go and ask a friend or ask Paul and get someone to pray with you. So Jesus calls us to be saints, to be thankful, to be one, to be foolish. And what we're thinking today is, Lord, I want to hear you call my name. I don't just want to hear you say, yes, come along, everything's fine. But Lord, you are calling me to be all of those four things. So as we sort of pray and worship over the next 40 minutes or so, so we're going to be thinking and saying, Lord, yes, thank you for the calling you've made on my life. We're maybe going to have some times of silence. I'm just going to listen and say, Lord, are you speaking to me? Are you speaking to me to do any of those things? Or something different? Something that people would say, that can't be God, that's really silly. God's calling us to do all kinds of things. We're his hands and his feet, aren't we, on earth? So as we listen and as we do, so God will bless us. Just one verse before I finish. Psalm 73, verse 25. In the Holman Christian Study Bible, uh, Standard Bible, it says, Who do I have in heaven but you? And I desire nothing on earth but you. And in the message it says, You're all I want in heaven. You're all I want on earth. And so I want us to be encouraged today that it is God that we can say, Lord, you are everything to me in heaven, everything to me on earth. As you call me, help me to follow you. So let's pray, and then we're going to worship the Lord together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is true. Lord, as you call us to do different things today and over the coming days, Lord, we know that you're always going to want us to be saints. You're always going to want us to be thankful, to act as one people, to be childish and childlike in the way that we do things. Lord, thank you for your calling on our lives. And Lord, we expect and know that you'll carry on speaking to us and loving us because that's the way you are. You love us so much and we're very grateful. Amen.